Midnight in Karachi with Mahavish Murad on Tor.com. My guest today is artist and writer Indra Das, whose debut novel, The Devourers, is a beautiful, brutal story about shapeshifters in India, filled with fantastic rhythm and folklore and ancient legend. His short fiction has been published in Clark's World, Apex, and Strange Horizons. He's also the speculative fiction editor for an Indian publisher. Indra, hi. Welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Now, we'll get to The Devourers in a moment, which, as you know, and as you know, people who may have read my review know that I really, really enjoyed. But let me first ask you, since you were recently touring for the book in the U.S., how was that? How was San Diego Comic-Con? It was exactly how insane you would imagine it to be. Um, honestly, Comic-Con, it, it resembled puja crowds in India. It was that heavily crowded. It wow. was just incredible to see that kind of... Um, um, life in in a U.S. city, which is not to say that U.S. cities are lifeless, but uh, especially New York is it does resemble Calcutta at points in terms of crowds. But uh, this was just something else, especially because there was that kind of sh- sense of revelry also that you find in pujas uh, during uh, during the Durga Puja in Calcutta. You know, everyone's out outside on the streets, they're having fun, and um, you know just. The crowds are massive, so massive, and they're all flocking to these stalls and temples. Oh, well, pandals um, rather. So anyway, not to not to uh, go on too much of a tangent, but it was truly, truly mind-blowingly um, uh, just vibrant, you know. And um, it was such a spectacle. I just walked around the con floor for hours, literally hours, not really doing anything, but just looking at stuff. So basically, in, at Comic-Con, they have a con floor and then they have the panels and the rest of the convention centers. You have to go to rooms if you uh, want to sit and listen to panels or you just wander around the con floor, which is all the stalls of all the people participating and exhibiting their work. So DC Comics, Marvel, whatever, they have their huge ones and the indie publishers and indie artists have their smaller ones. And you just kind of... It's like a massive marketplace almost um, of ideas and, you know, just of display, displaying toys and books and and the signings and whatnot. So I went and I kind of sat at the Delray booth. Delray is my publisher in the U.S. Uh, and Canada. So uh, I was there with them whenever I had to do any work. I went for three signings at their booth and it was and it was truly astonishing. I didn't, I honestly didn't expect anyone to show up because I'm not exactly a well-known author there. And uh, but there were no, there were no gaps during the signings. And it wasn't all people who knew my work, but I was just shocked at how many people were lining up, even in the publishing section of Comic Con. It was completely packed. All the, the Tor booth, the Delray booth, the Random House booth, they were all filled with people. And so. Um, people would come for the signings just to get, you know, to meet an author or to get the freebies. In my case, Delray was handing out this um, poster with the cover of the book on it, uh, the cover of The Devourers. So I was signing the posters and giving them people. And, you know, people were just so friendly. They would come up and ask what the book was about. 
and what it was. And some people would think that I was an artist because it was a poster and they would just be drawn to the artwork, which is very beautiful. Um, and they did a great job with the cover. So it was a very good tactic on their part, uh, marketing wise, you know, just giving away this poster because lots of people flocked to it. Just seeing that really strong image of uh, Sierra on the cover. So, yeah, that was great. All the signings went well. Um, we gave away lots of posters, and I was also on two panels. Uh, one was, of course, a diversity panel. And, of course uh, you yeah. <laughs> And the other one was, um, uh, was kind of an introduction of all the authors that Del Rey was with um, right. at Comic-Con. So, yeah, both of those went great as well. So I have to ask, speaking of the diversity panel, did you, my next question, coincidentally, actually was, did you get touted as Indra Das, Indian writer, a lot? I mean, not to say you're not, but sometimes that sort of, I, I feel, sets up certain restrictions on whom people assume you Absolutely. or your work yeah. to be, right? For sure, for sure. Um, Delray has been excellent with that. They have, they have been so, so sensitive about all of these issues, and they've always asked me, and and when, um, you know, I'm not, as I said, I'm not a very well-known author there at this point. And so, you know, it, it wasn't easy for them. I'm assuming it wasn't easy for them to get me on any panels outside of the Del Rey panel. So I'm guessing the Comic-Con didn't give them much of a choice when it uh, came to putting me on a panel somewhere. So since I am an Indian writer, they probably offer a diversity panel. Um, but Del Rey were very, um, like they asked me several times whether I was okay with that, whether I wanted to do the panel. And so I told them, yes, I was willing to do the panel as long as I wasn't the only, um, non-white person on the panel, which would be ridiculous, but right. you know, that, that stuff happens. I All can't. the time. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, they, they looked into that and I was not the only non-white author on the panel, thankfully. So I said yes, and, you know, I thought, might as well go and see what it's like, you know. <laughs> and it, it wasn't it wasn't bad at all, because my um, panel mates were excellent panelists, and they, they were very intelligent and, you know, very good at at doing what people do on panels, you know, letting people speak and doing and saying their own bit. And um, and the audience was also extremely smart in their engagement. They had good questions, and uh, you know they were very respectful of the topic and of the writers. And so yeah, it, it went it went very well. And um, but getting back to what you asked about uh, me being an Indian writer and whether I've been touted as that, Delray definitely has not done that. Like they've been very good about not exoticizing where I'm from and, you know, that whole origin story of it being an Indian book first and whatnot. They've just, you know, done their work and published what they saw it as, which is a cross-genre fantasy. And it's set in India, but, you know, it's um, that's not their primary selling point. Um, it's just one of the selling points. And the fact that I'm Indian is definitely not... Um, doesn't really feature in their marketing as a big deal. So they're they're really just pushing the book and pushing me as a writer, you know. And yeah. um, they've been they've been great about that throughout. You know, I'm still uncertain if the world of publishing is genuinely open to genre writers from, say, the subcontinent or parts of Southeast Asia, as much as it is 
wanting to be or sometimes just pretending it to be. Was it tough to sell The Devourers to a Western publisher? It, it, it took quite a while. So, yes. I mean, but the thing is, I don't know how tough it was relative to other writers from the subcontinent because, I mean, in terms of how long it took, it took about a year uh, from when my agent, uh, Sally Harding, at the Cook Agency started submitting it to publishers and um, until when it was accepted. Well, actually, it took more than, uh, much longer than that. What am I saying? Because I'm confusing uh, the acceptance, the Indian acceptance from Penguin India with Delray. So that's, uh, sorry, that's actually inaccurate. So it took about one and a half years or two years. I'm very bad with time. But it didn't seem like a huge amount of time compared with a lot of writers I know who, you know, who have sometimes taken years or have never sold their work. So I can't say in regards to how long it usually takes writers from the subcontinent, but definitely the rejection, the, the rejections we got uh, from uh, US and Canadian and I think British, no, I, I think it was just uh, US and Canadian publishers Many of them basically straight up said, we really like this book, but it's too Indian. So that bias is absolutely there. Whatever and, that uh, means, though, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they were saying that audiences wouldn't relate to it or that it would be hard to sell because it was so dependent on Indian mythology and uh, an Indian setting. And so... Basically, you know, it was it's it's white supremacy writ large in publishing. We were all familiar with this, and it was just really surprising to see it so blatantly because they they you know it didn't seem like a thing they were at all ashamed of. They would just straight up say, "We like this book, but we can't. We're not going to take it because it's too Indian. It depends too much on Indian mythology." Blah blah blah. Whereas you have, you know, all these fantasy novels with made-up mythologies right, and no one, seems to, <laughs> no one seems to have any trouble with that. And, you know, it's not like this book is very confusingly plunged into Indian mythology. I mean, everything is quite explicitly explained almost yeah. uh, because it's written point uh, from the point of view of a historian who's kind of stopping and literally explaining historical concepts yeah. and, uh, I mean, mythological concepts. So... It's it's not like it's hard to get in any way, and you know it's what? A, Sorry, go ahead. It's a fallacy anyway, because yeah. you know, you know, there's it's not any trouble to immerse yourself in a different culture if you're reading a book and it's you know written in a clear way. So yeah, we did we did have um, oh, and I should mention that most of those publishers we submitted to literary publishers first, so primarily literary publishers, the big ones, you know, um, Random House, Penguin, blah, 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 all the major imprints in the U.S. Um, and obviously, I'm not, I'm not going to name names and say which ones gave those answers and which ones didn't, because not all of them uh, gave that answer. Some of them were very, um, some of them had very excellent feedback and, you know, gave good rejections and were very nice about it. And, um I remember, in fact, the way it got published in India was because uh, one editor really liked it, but um, this I can say, it was at Knopf, and um, they had already published another werewolf series, uh, uh, I forget the name, um, but it was, 
it was quite popular. The first book was quite popular. So they didn't want to get into another uh, book which had werewolves in it in any capacity. So they kind of sent it to Sunny Mehta, who sent it to Chiki Sharkar, who, is, who was at the time the head of Penguin India, and she loved it. And um, that's how I, got, I first got published at Penguin India. So not everyone was... Um, racist (laughs) what I I particularly love hate love hate about this response that it's too Indian is that I I keep thinking would it is it better or is it worse that they straight up said this was the problem as opposed to them saying you know we're just not into this or we don't like the language or we can't engage with it or one of those generic responses you know is this worse or is this better when you're straight up saying oh you're just too for lack of a better term you're saying it's too ethnic aren't you Mm -hmm. exactly I, I think honestly it is better that they were being honest but um but this is, this, is the, this is the problem, Indra, with people like you and I. We, we've got to a point where when the racism happens, you end up being <laughs> grateful that it's honest racism. I know, I know. It's, right? It's but awful. how messed up Which, is that? Yeah, to continue my point, I, I, I do think it's good that they were honest, but at the same time, I think it's terrible that they didn't interrogate that uh, honesty or, you right. know, interrogate what they were saying when they were being honest, you know, because... Uh, it's incredible that publishers believe this, you know, because there's a there's obviously a huge market for uh, stories from other countries from outside the West. Uh, you know, it's not like it's some kind of hidden secret that people are clamoring for it now. This dialogue right. is everywhere. Um, and I, I, I as a writer, obviously, I don't know how that translates into numbers, but I'm pretty sure that if publishers actually really tried marketing fiction from outside the West, it would not fail, you know, because lots of people want it. There's the, it, the West isn't just white people, and even white people want it. You know, it's not like white people are all racist. There's tons of white people who want diverse fiction. Um, and again, I'm using diverse, which is, you know, it's, it's a word you can dissect and I do have problems with it, but it's for better and worse. It's the term we are now currently using in right. terms of publishing and writing. Uh, but so, yeah, I, I think it's good that they were honest and straight up about it. But at the same time, I think it's terrible that that is in any way a reason for a publisher to turn down a book that they liked. Well, now let's talk about the book itself. Where did it come <laughs> from? Did it go through many sort of variations of itself before it became what you know, what I eventually read, what's eventually been published. It did go through many, many variations. It actually started with um, with something that actually happened to me. It started with an incident, which um, incidentally I've told many times to many people and I told at the panels at Comic-Con and people seem to love it. So it's become kind of like a thing that I've um, grown used to telling. So anyway, it happened uh, several years ago. Uh, I was in college, but I was in Calcutta at the time. So I was studying in the U.S., but I would come back to India every summer and winter for vacation uh, time. And um, so it was one of those summer, sorry, winter breaks uh, around 2005, 2006. I was at a Baul Mala in Kolkata. So the book begins with one of these things. It's a music festival where these rural bards... uh, from the countryside of West Bengal called Bauls. They come to the city and they play music at night. 
and people watch them and get high and drink and just kind of hang around in this festival atmosphere in a field. So I was at one of these festivals and I was listening to the Bowls play in this tent-like structure and I was outside, uh, much like the character in the book in the beginning, in the beginning of the novel. So um, I was standing there and I was uh, with my friends and we were very high um, on hash and we were listening to this music and this little kitten comes up to my feet and it's really tiny and and all around us there were these stray dogs um, kind of trying to get to the kitten. They were hunting it essentially and trying to eat it or kill it. Uh, and so they were kind of circling the crowd, but you could tell that they were really eager to get to that kitten. So I kind of kept it in my orbit and I protected it as best as I could while listening to this music, which is very, very visceral and kind of raw. I don't even especially like the music of the bowels, but it's extremely evocative because of how raw it is how unfiltered and it just it sounds like wailing at points and and they've got these drums and so it was wonderful and I, I was in such an intoxicated state that I kind of fell into this trance where I imagined myself to be in a story because I was being surrounded by these dogs and I became the one that was being hunted and I attained this timeless space where I felt like I was in the past and the present at the same time. And I started wondering what it would feel like to a traveler in that spot hundreds of years ago in the countryside of Bengal, you know, just stranded in the wilderness in the dark at a campfire listening to bards sing and knowing that there were these beasts beyond the firelight hunting you. And, you know, at that time, and even now in several parts of the world, monsters were real in a way because people had a different kind of magical way of thinking uh, and uh, mythology was closer mythology and folklore was closer to reality than it is now in our from our urban viewpoint so i was thinking of that way of thinking and um, and i imagined these monsters surrounding us and i asked myself what monsters are these and the first thing that came to my mind was werewolves. And so that's when I asked myself, why werewolves? Why, why did you immediately think of werewolves in an Indian setting? And essentially, the novel was an answer to that question. What, what are these werewolves doing in India? Why, why did you think of werewolves hunting you? Um, so that's kind of how the novel started out in my head. And then I wrote these short stories based on that incident in college. Uh, and then eventually, years later, in university in Vancouver, um, at the University of British Columbia, I was doing my MFA and I needed to do a thesis and I hadn't done anything. And it was the last semester. And so I dug up these short stories and kind of interrogated the tropes I was using in them. Uh, and that's how the novel kind of started coming about as a work of prose, where I, I built on them and started questioning why, not just why werewolves, but why I'd used women in such a conveniently shitty way, in that I was using these women as victims for these monsters uh, to ostensibly interrogate violence, uh, masculine or sexual violence against women, but at the same time I wasn't giving them a voice. They only existed as victims. 
so again, this this novel was kind of an interrogation with myself um, in terms of why why was I using women in that way? Why was I thinking of werewolves? So that's how I wrote the novel in one go. In four months, one semester, I finished the first draft. And then I revised it many times, of, of course, uh, um, until I got an agent and then I revised it with her. And this uh, US release is the final version, I guess, because I edited it a bit with my American editor, Mike Braff. Uh, we kind of subtly added on little bits that aren't there in the Indian version. It's not very different, but there's um, a few scenes are extended. So yeah, it's gone through many, many permutations along the years. Well, in that, you've answered uh, the next two questions I had, so I'm going to move on <laughs> onwards. <laughs> About the violence, it is a violent story. It's a violent book, not just in terms of blood and gore and murder, but there's also sexual violence, as you were just mentioning, mm -hmm. which is always hard to write about. It's always hard to read. Um, it's always also hard to write about from a writer's perspective as part of a larger social commentary about rape culture, for instance. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how do you deal with something like that? Is that part of, you know, was that part of the process that you were dealing with when you were writing this? Very much so, yeah. Uh, when I first, so the, the rape in the novel, that was originally in, um, in one of the short stories I wrote in college that many years ago. So when I first wrote it in college, I didn't think about it very much. And when I came back to it, that was very evident in the carelessness of the way in which I handled it. So, uh, as I said, that's kind of what I wanted to interrogate, you know, uh, male writers using rape as an easy kind of tool to seem dramatic or to seem, it's kind of like suicide. You know, when I was in the MFA program, we saw a lot of stories about suicide and sexual violence and used in a very casual manner. And I think amateur writers do this because it's an easy way to gain uh, emotional heft in a story or an ostensibly easy way. It's not, but it seems like it is. So that's what I did back then. Um, and I don't even remember how I got to a rape scene when I wrote that short story. Whereas now, when I, if I ever thought of writing another rape scene, it would, I mean, it would take me so much thinking to get to that point, you know, like just to even attempt that. Uh, so when I was writing the novel, when I was actually uh, going from that short story that I'd written so long ago, I was, I was really stuck. I, I didn't know how to deal with what I'd written. And uh, to the point where I was wondering whether I should just scrap it entirely and write uh, a story about monsters in a different way. And I didn't think of the absolutely obvious thing, which was to write from the point of view of the rape survivor, Sira. So when that hit me, that's when the novel just flowed out of me. And that's when I started using her voice. When I gave, when I gave her a voice, when she started talking in the book, that's when it all just came out and that's when I wrote most of the novel. So uh, honestly, social media played a huge part in um, kind of developing the novel. Uh, back then, it wasn't as, in the dialogue around sexual violence and misogyny and 
sexism in media wasn't as intense on social media, but it had already begun. That was 2008, I think. No, 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 no. What am I saying? I'm so terrible at judging time. Uh, I think it was... That's okay. <laughs> I think it was 2009 or 10. Yeah, 10. It was 2010, um, approximately, when I started writing the novel. So the dialogue was definitely starting, you know, on Twitter, on Facebook. And I just started using Twitter. But just listening to women did wonders for um, writing this book, you know, because listening to the survivors of sexual assault, really, that is, that, that honestly changed the way I go about my life, the way I think about things, the way I approach everything. And, uh, and social media was essential in that, you know, people love to bash it for the way we misuse it. And we do misuse it. And it is often trivial and stupid and yeah. toxic. But there's also so much value in it, because I've listened to so, so many people. And I've read so many people that uh, so many voices that I would never have had exposure to otherwise, you know, and um, Oh, absolutely. So, so that was a that was a huge part uh, element of what helped me write Sira. You know, just listening to the voices of women online, uh, not just on social media, but also articles and books. So, um, I think that's how I dealt with the difficulty of writing a survivor of sexual violence. And of course, knowing people who have survived sexual violence was another huge thing. Uh, actually talking to them and I hadn't really ever done that when I was younger uh, but once you get older you, you find circumstances and relationships change and so I did end up talking to friends and uh, acquaintances who have suffered sexual violence and harassment and really pretty much every woman I meet has gone through harassment if not violence so and uh, women every day are facing the actual threat of sexual violence so it's not something that is you don't easily... have to go looking far for something like exactly this, exactly you, right. exactly sad, you don't have to look... sad as it is but... exactly it's not difficult to find right. voices um for that so i that's what i wanted to do when i wrote sira i wanted to give all those voices voice in this book, you know, like just kind of uh, make a character who really stood for that frustration and anger that women go through daily and, and men go through daily who care about the world and the way we interact with women. Well, now there's also a fair bit of homosexuality in The Devourers as well. It's a bit risky, yes. given that you're publishing in a country, living in a country where this is illegal. Uh, as someone who's always had to sort of self-censor every opinion I've ever put out <laughs> there, I, I, I did raise an eyebrow at this because I know how easy it could have been, it could still be, for someone to just take massive offense at this in our part of the world and, you know, to make your life very difficult. Um, even though publishing isn't, for example, as monitored in the subcontinent, say, mm. as film is. But it's strange, isn't it, this aspect of self-censorship. Did you feel that you had to actively make an effort not to do that? I actually didn't when I was writing the book. Uh, I think perhaps because I was writing it abroad, um, right. well, at least the first draft. 
I was writing it in Canada and I was essentially living there. So I didn't really think about self-censorship because honestly, I was thinking of selling to publishers primarily in North America. And I wanted it to be available in India, but I wasn't thinking of censoring it because I wasn't thinking that it would be published in India first. So once it got accepted by an Indian publisher first, before I even had any idea that Del Rey would have accepted, uh, I did start to think about whether or not uh, people would have a problem with it, but I I didn't care too much because because Penguin India didn't care. I was actually quite surprised when when I got back the first edit. I was really nervous that they would want to cut huge am- amounts of the text, right. but they didn't. Uh, they didn't say anything about the graphic sex in it or the fact that there was so much homosexuality in it. So I was really surprised at that. And when they didn't care, I thought, you know, (laughs) they surely know what they're doing (laughs) because they're an Indian publisher. So I guess I'll stop worrying as well. So I do occasionally think about the fact that in India, literally any random person could read the book, take offense and... Um, Make declare your life that, very yeah, yes. exactly. Yes. Declare that the book is banned, or even ask to have me arrested. I mean, you heard the news about uh, that actress recently who said that Pakistan is not hell, yes. and yes. she is literally <laughs> she literally had to go to court to yeah. face sedition charges. I mean, maybe she probably won't go to prison, and the charges will probably be dropped. But it's but, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, she still had to go to court. It, that is it's just, just absolute, yeah, it's absolutely mind blowing, and we're supposed to democracy. This is this is. It was interesting to me that you so went ahead. I guess you wrote the book that you had to write. Yes, and I would continue to do that in the future because, honestly, how you know what what else are you going to do? I mean, people will take offense at anything, including saying Pakistanis are human yes. beings. So so you can't really do anything. I mean, if it would be different. If I was in film, in the film industry, for example, where you literally cannot release a movie without following a certain um, Code, set of guidelines, right. you know, yes. like you will be censored. You, you, there's nothing you can do about it. So, you know, that which is why the film, the film industry here is so stagnant and it's rotting. It's based, it's just Bollywood, and you know, sure, I know lots of people love Bollywood, and there's merit in Bollywood for sure, but it's also so much of it is so toxic and just and you know it's the only thing that exists the the film industry does not allow anything else because anything else will be banned because anything else that tries to talk about the country in any way or you know deal with any kind of realistic portrayal of india's society will probably just be banned so you know you can't do anything about it uh, whereas, at least in the publishing industry, we don't have a censor board, so we don't have to worry about that. We just have to worry about random people reading your book and then declaring that it be banned and then the government listening to them. So, you know, it could happen at any time, but it hasn't so far, thankfully. I read somewhere that you started writing uh, something like an Indian version of Lord of the Rings at some point, early when you started writing. Now, I hate that for so many of us colonized people, we always start off with 
our version of a Western premise or concept or story. And yet, in some way, it kind of evens out the playing field, doesn't it? Having the same sort of reading repertoire as everyone else in Western publishing. We are familiar with what mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. else is familiar with, but we can grow away from that. Or exactly, exactly. I, I think we absolutely can. I mean, uh, the the devourer is, is my attempt at doing that because I honestly did want to write a book that people would find very unusual. And and from the response I'm getting from a lot of people, um, it does seem to have had that effect. And then a lot of people have told me that it's not like anything else they see on the shelves, which was my desire you know it, it's it's absolutely what i wanted to do i wanted to write an indian book that isn't what you used to seeing you know uh, it wasn't just a, re- a retelling of the mahabharata or the ramayana and you know nothing wrong with that but that's the only kind of fantasy we see on indian shelves basically now um, aside from again samit basu who kind of made Indian fantasy a thing single-handedly by writing uh, a series of um, kind of humorous fantasy novels uh, in the mid, uh, early 2000s. So I, I wanted to write a book that <clears throat> that crossed genres and crossed countries and would appeal to people in India and uh, anywhere. So um, I think we can absolutely grow out of that starting point of imitating Eurocentric fantasy, and you're right in that it does give us this, um, it does even the playing field because it helps when you first start out because it familiarizes you with the environment you're going to be working with if you want to be a part of the international genre publishing industry and community because people are familiar with these works. Uh, all across the world and especially in the West, which, you know, they have the monopoly on publishing. So if you're a writer and you want a lot of people to read you, you're going to gravitate towards the West whether or not you like it because, you know, they they control the majority of publishing in the world and they distribute the most books and they have the most money. So they have the most resources. So you're going to go to the West. And in genre fiction, there's this other kind of industry which is even more welcoming to amateur writers or writers just starting out because it's kind of easier to break into, which is which I really found when I, was, when I started writing. So th- that book you mentioned was my first novel. It was um, kind of a, a, my attempt at being an Indian Tolkien and it was sort of Indian influence in that it would kind of sneakily put in some elements of mythology that were slightly evocative of India, but mostly it was just a clone of the various fantasy novels I was reading, you know, Shannara, Wheel of Time, uh, David Jamal Gemmel. I, I don't know how to pronounce his, his name. <laughs> I read a lot of names that I don't know how to pronounce, to yes, be honest. Yes, me too. <laughs> me too. So I was kind of it. creating this clone. Uh, and when, But when I started writing short stories, like science fiction and fantasy short stories, I found it's so much easier to kind of find out about the genre short fiction 
industry because th- it was so clear. Everything was pre- presented with such clarity. You know, this is how you submit. We take unsolicited submissions. This is how much we pay. They give you these very clear guidelines, which the larger publishing industry didn't always do, at least back then. Now I think it's changed a bit. But uh, when you're starting out submitting to publishers, it's like this huge unknown world. But with science fiction and fantasy magazines online, they, they're they kind of welcoming in a different way in that, you know, it seems not very difficult because you could submit online and they had a very specific way of submitting that you could follow. And I did do that. And <clears throat> they were very they were very receptive to my terrible teenage fiction in that they would they would reject it quite kindly and they would encourage me to submit again and they would give very specific feedback. And so I became familiarized with that industry by just submitting to all these Western genre magazines. And eventually that's where I got my first um, published story. You know, my first published thing was a short story in Flash Fiction Online and then Redstone Science Fiction, which is this defunct magazine. So I think it was quite easy to submit to Western science fiction and fantasy magazines in a way that it isn't in India, for example. You know, there there are no science fiction. Well, there, there are now a few, like Mithila um, Review and... Well, that's about it, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know of any others. There might be others. There have been others that have blinked out of existence. But it's it's very difficult to run a magazine that caters to speculative fiction because there's no funding for that, essentially. And so no readership because there's no marketing for it either. Mithila survives by sheer force of will because the people who run it are so passionate and because they also publicize it to the Western and international genre community, which is essential. You know, that, that gives it some clout because people spread the word, etc., etc. So now what are you up to next? Um, I'm writing a whole bunch of short stories. That That's something I constantly do. But obviously, a second book is my priority. See, my process is extremely haphazard in that I'm working on multiple ideas, for a second book right now. And I usually don't really talk about it much with people because because of the fact that I'm working on multiple things. So one of them is a science fiction novel. Hopefully I managed to finish it. I would love to finish it. I'm really liking the world it's set in. It's actually based on a short story that I sold to Lightspeed, which should be out um, sometime in the next year uh it's called the planetless oh sorry it's called the worldless and it's about this cast of people who live on a planet that is entirely a spaceport and they exist only to service people passing through that spaceport planet so essentially i wanted to explore what a culture without a culture would look like and how they would develop uh, on this world that is kind of in this limbo state because it it isn't allowed to have a culture essentially it's just it's it's like if there was a city in an airport on a cosmic scale so i want to explore that and i love the world and i want to write a novel in it 
and I want to write more about the characters in the short story. So I'm working on that. And I'm also working on another thing that started off, again, as a short story, and I, wa- I want to expand it. Lots of my novels, as you can tell, lots of my novels start out as short stories, like The Devourers. Um, so this one is kind of about this uh, godlike figure. Well, it, it is a god witnessing the end of a world that they didn't create. So they're, they're visiting this world in the body of a human, and they meet this person who worships the god that is going to end the world. So it's a Lovecraftian god that is rising up out of the sea and destroying the world. And this person that the explorer god is meeting worships the destructor god that is going to destroy their world. So they have a conversation and then the world ends. This is sounding really complicated, but essentially I want to write a novel about this god who is going from world to world visiting these places like a human being playing a video game, essentially, um, playing multiple video games. So I want to, I want to follow the journey of a god exploring worlds that they didn't create and kind of finding inspiration for their own worlds. So this is obviously extremely ambitious, and I don't know if I can pull it off because writing from the viewpoint of a god is extremely difficult and uh, because there's not much occasion for conflict. So it's it's finding ways to put him in a put them in a human viewpoint without making them human. So we'll see how it goes. I'm, so basically I'm working on a second novel. I don't know which one it'll be, but I'm working on multiple ideas right now. It's also hard to find gods online and on Twitter, you know, to pick their brains. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. No godly voices. But that sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to both of those. Thank you. Yeah, I hope I can finish them. <laughs> I would hope so, because we'll speak again when you do. Yes, I'll, I'll use that as impetus. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. I'm a big fan of your podcast, by the way. So it's very surreal being here. What a (laughs) wonderful way to end, Indra. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Midnight in Karachi with Mavish Murad on Tor.com.